0: and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away.
1: Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama
2: Happy Halloween. This is Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm Marco Palmieri.
3: And I'm Devin Shepard.
2: I don't want to say we've saved the best for last, but we picked a hell of a story to share with you on what is perhaps my favorite day of the year. It may be one of the most chilling we've ever presented on our show.
3: A black surgeon goes to North Carolina to do research, but to find the knowledge he seeks will require sacrifice.
2: We're very pleased to present Night Doctors, Written by P. Jelly Clark and voiced by Leon Nixon. The
4: only Ku Klux I ever bumped into was a parcel of young Baltimore doctors trying to catch me one night and take me to the medicine college to pyramid on me. I see them a-laying for me and I run back into the house. They had a plaster all ready for to slap on my mouth. Yes, sir. Cornelius Garner, ex-slave, Virginia. Interview by Emmy Wilson and Claude W. Anderson. May 18, 1937. Weevils in the Wheat. 1976, page 102. My arrival in Durham comes on a sweltering August afternoon in 1937. I'm here on work with the Federal Writers Project asked to conduct interviews of former slaves, to collect their stories, memories, and folkways, as that generation is daily dying out and will soon reach its end. Securing lodgings comes with its usual difficulties, as Jim Crowism is as rampant in this city as any other in the South. From my experience, I can assure that if there is anything that a Southerner dislikes more than a colored man, it is one who shows education and learning. The proprietor of the Chanford Motel informs me that he does not rent rooms to niggers, with further invectives followed by a hail of saliva and pungent chewing tobacco. I wipe the detritus from my spectacles and leave the establishment, not altogether surprised. After some investigation, I am able to secure lodgings in the city at the place of a colored butcher, a squat anvil of a man with arms suited to his profession. He tends to his work while we haggle, hacking at a knuckle of meat with a wide hog splitter and cleanly slicing flesh from bone with a thin knife. Well, I'll take you on. Mr. Beset. is it? Gonna have to get your food someplace else, though. Mama Elsa's just around the corner. One of the finest meals you'll ever have in town, unless you like your meat rare. He chuckles, wiping his apron with ham-fisted, bloody smears before showing me up some side stairs. The room is clean but Spartan: a small bed, a closet, and a window that opens to an alley. You can comes and goes as you please. Gonna have to put up with the smell though when I'm butchering. I surreptitiously sniff the air, where a coppery scent seeps into every pore and crevice. You say you a writer? His eyes moved to appraise my supple hands. And you here to ask old folk about slavery times? Government pay colored men for that? I explain that many of the old Negroes prove reluctant with white interviewers. The Works Progress Administration hopes that colored men and women such as myself can alleviate their recalcitrance. He laughs. (laughs) President Roosevelt making a job for everybody. And what you thinking to find out about slavery times? That white folk had as much of the devil in them then as now. We share a knowing smile before he departs, the one that unites the colored race across region and caste in our sacred knowledge and unwritten scriptures on the ways of white folk. When he's gone, I open my suitcases, laying out my clothes and removing a leather book that I place beneath the mattress. Then I set out for dinner. True to the butcher's words, Mama Elsa a matronly woman who is a wonder in the kitchen, provides me with a fine meal of the Southern Negro variety. Learning I am from the North, she sits to talk with me over jars of iced tea and raisin cake, suggesting where I might find older Negroes who remember slavery. When I return to my room, I plot out my plans for the next day, turn down the lights, and retire. I wake up sometime after 2 a.m. I pick out a white suit from my belongings a full jacket, vest, and pants with white socks and white shoes. Fully dressed, I grab a matching cloth bag and make my way down the side passage of the butchery until I step outside. Pulling a white bowler down to keep it firm, I enter into Durham's still night, keeping from the main roads and remain hidden behind buildings and shadows until reaching my destination. When I rap on the door with a white-gloved hand, the face of the man that greets me looks confused. Perhaps from being roused from sleep, or at the sight of a tall Negro man dressed in white, wearing a surgeon's mask. The blur of silver cuts a clean line across the man's throat, spraying bits of crimson onto the white apron I assiduously placed over my wares. He clutches the open wound, shock and pain marring his sharp features. He does not try to scream, not that he can, with the severed trachea. Instead, he tries to hold in the fluid that leaks over his hands. Staggering back and knocking over a small stool as he falls, I follow and close the door behind me. The proprietor of the Chanford Motel lines on a disheveled rug, his bare legs kicking from beneath a blue robe. Riding the stool, I seat myself and watch. The condescension that had once filled those gray eyes when he'd earlier hurled slurs in my face is gone. There's only fear now in a gaze that is fixed singly on me as if I have become his whole world. It is an animal's terror, unable to look away from the predator that has captured it. He watches as I remove a cloth bundle from my bag spreading it upon the floor. The silver instruments within are sharp, made for cutting and slicing. I run a finger over them, as am reminded how similar a surgeon's tools are to a butcher's. A wet gurgling comes from the specimen laid out before me, a failed attempt to speak through ruined cartilage. I imagine it is asking, why? So I answer. You may think this is vengeance for our earlier, uncivil encounter. But I can assure you, it is nothing so base. I draw out my leather book, opening it to show notations and sketches. I'm a curious man, you see, looking for something. And you, I believe, offer a fine sampling. Those panic-stricken animal eyes remain on me as I cut open the specimen's abdomen. They stay open long after I begin my search within the reek of bile and organs. In my book, I jot down my findings. My first three interviews the next day yield little result. Two of the Negroes were children at the end of slavery and remember little of it. A third is so addle-minded he does little more than glare. It is late afternoon when I arrive at the home of Miss Maddie Shaw who lives with her granddaughter in a humble shack at the city's edge, near woods untouched by electricity, plumbing, or paved roads. Miss Shaw claims to be 97 years of age. She is an ideal illustration of the old Negro type. Black skin, white teeth, and woolly hair. Her face, with its wide forehead and prognathous jaw, bears a regal countenance that looks descended from the Amazons of Dahomey. She is bound to this place by infirmity and lords over it like a kentaka of old Meroe. When I tell her why I've come, she is guarded. Can I tell you about Slavery Day's show? But I ain't going to. Most of it I can't remember. And the rest is too awful to tell. Don't need to know all that old talk nohow. how You got sweeties? I lack sweet things and don't get them too often. At learning I have no sweets, she turns away from me with disinterest. Her granddaughter, younger than myself, though aged unnaturally by a life under Jim Crowism, is my savior. She prods the elder, telling her I've come to put her story into a book. Miss Maddie Shaw shifts in her rickety throne and eyes me contemplatively. Well... I'll tell you some to put down in your book, but not the worst. Where I'm from, was born and raised right here. Same as my mammy and pappy, back when this was all pain land. My old missus, that be Miss Emma Payne. How she treat me, like a missus treat all her slaves. She'd slap and beat you with her hands, and every now and then, take you with a switch till you raw but her husband was the tough one. Hang you up by your thumbs in the barn and then whoop you till the blood run. Did he beat women? Why, sure, he beat them just like men. Beat us naked and wash us down in brine on Sundays, right before he gone to church. She makes a bitter face. I ain't gonna tell you much more. No, I ain't. No sense for you to know about all those mean white folk. They all dead now. Is they in heaven? Lord, no. They don't deserve heaven nor hell. Wish the night doctors had took them. Those last words jolt my spine. Setting aside my writing pad, I reach into my bag for my leather book and bid her to continue, trying to hold back my eagerness. Night doctors? Oh, They was a fright round here back when this was pain land. Night doctors was men, you see, only they was not men. You used to come round at night and snatch away slaves to experiment on. Best you up and die before the night doctors get you. They take you to where they stay, a great, wide dissecting hall, big as a whole city, and cut you open right there and show you all your insides. Old Miss Shaw reads my face as if it were etched with runes and grins at deciphering them. Oh, I sees what you like. Ain't stories about slaves and white folk you want to hear. It's stories about haints and witches, raw head and bloody bones. Old Maddie knows them stories. And better. You come back with something sweet. Might just tell you more. With that, her face closes. I shut my book in turn and bid her farewell. Thoughts of the night doctors whispering in my head.
5: island
2: in frigid lake superior a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it ancestor by number one new york times best-selling author scott sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong available wherever you get your podcasts
4: night doctors mama elsa squints at me over the frosted rim of a mason jar Now, what do you want with them old stories? I explain that the Federal Writers Project is interested in the folkways of ex-slaves, and I share a particular interest. In fact, I tell her, I am collecting such stories for a book. She raises a sculpted eyebrow and removes a flat tin flask from somewhere in her voluminous saffron dress to top off our iced tea. You writer folks sure got queer ideas. I just know what the old people say. Night doctors were supposed to be men what snatched away slaves. They'd leave traps to get you. Some of them had black bottles full of ether or needles to prick you with. Other times they'd put plaster around your face. They'd experiment on you, slice you up while you were still alive even. I ask if she believes such stories. Did when I was little. My auntie used to tell us. She said she heard them from my grandmammy. Used to give me a fright. But I knows better now. Night Doctors was made up by white folks. Was the masters they selves, you see. Dressing up and scaring the slaves to keep them from running off the plantations. I nod thoughtfully. Night Doctors. Night witches, night riders, bottle men, and needle men. My first hearing of the tale was back in Washington, D.C., in medical school, conveyed to us as a curious superstition of Negro migrants so plentiful in the city. Much as Mama Elsa relates, it's commonly held that the folklore arose with slave masters. Others claim it began with the all-too-common practice of selling deceased slaves to medical colleges as cadavers. Night Doctors lingered on with freedom, with some mistaking the Klan for the Ku Klux Doctors. The stories are common among Negroes throughout the cities of the South, Charleston, New Orleans, Birmingham. And though told with slight variations, they share a remarkable continuity. Suppose you ask him about these Night Doctors because of what's been happening here in Durham, Mama Elsa says. I work my face into befuddlement and she leans forward to whisper. It's all folk can talk about. Four white people found dead in the past week. They was cut open and then sewed up, like somebody took the insides out and put it all back in again. I round my eyes to match her alarm, asking if they've caught anyone. She shakes her head. They ain't know who done it, but they saying it got to be some kind of doctor. They check all the white folk work up at the hospital. I sipped from my jar. Of course, in Durham, the culprit would be expected to be white. Negroes were suspected well enough of delinquencies, stealing, robbery, rape, even casual murder. But nothing like this, nothing that required such skill. Had anyone cared to look, they would find a pattern to the specimens. The store owner who viciously beat a colored boy of 12 for the offense of not removing his hat in a white man's presence. The public defender who conspired to shuffle his clients into chain gangs. The old carpenter who bragged openly of the Negro he once helped burn alive. The thread that connected them was gleaned from the whispered chatter picked up in spaces like Mama Elsa's of the many sins of this city, like the others. It should have been easy to see, but it was rendered as invisible as the crimes each had committed. Them killings done started up talk about night, doctors, Mama Elsa went on. Some sayin' they even seen a man in white skulking round the back streets at night. I remind her that she doesn't believe in such things anymore. She returns a wry grin. There's what you don't believe in. Mr. Bessette, and then there's what you're afraid of, she pauses. We used to sing this song about night doctors when we was small. She put on the wide eyes and hoary voice of an ancient storyteller, mesmerizing her clansmen about the fire. You see that house, that great white house, way yonder down the street? They used to take dead folks in there wrapped in a long white sheet. And sometimes when a nigger did stop a wondering who was dead, them night doctors would come along and bat him in the head and drag that poor dead nigger child right in the dissecting hall to investigate his liver, lights, his gizzard, and his gall. Take off that nigger's hands and feet, his eyes, his head, and all. And when them doctors finish up, they wasn't nothing left at all. She finishes with a whoop of laughter.
5: Maybe you can write a book about that. Perhaps I will, I answer, and I sip my tea.
4: It is a week before I return to see Miss Maddie Shaw. I find her alone, her granddaughter having gone into Durham to do domestic work. I ask if she remembers me. Well, I sure do. See you come back to ask more questions for your book. Colored folks sure come up high in the world. You get to learn from books in all them big schools with the white folk. No? A school just for colored folk? (laughs) Well, ain't that something. What they learn, you dark? Medicine, I tell her, discarding my earlier pretenses. I learned how to be a surgeon, but I was a curious man, and I now search for something beyond what my learning could teach me. I tell her I think she might be able to help. She listens and shrugs. If so you say, you brung something sweet? I offer up a bag of caramels, and her old eyes light up. She takes one between thumb and forefinger, plopping it, in her mouth and sucking joyfully. I wait for her to finish and ask about the night doctors. Like I say, they was the men that was not men who snatched away the slaves. They come mostly for the sick and old ones. Did Marci Payne pain, no? Pshaw! White folks ain't paying no mind what slaves say. They lose a healthy nigger and they thinking he ran off. They lose a sick or old nigger just one less mouth at the trout. Did they like to scare us? Show. Sure. Nothing made them happier than scaring niggers, exceptin' whippin' whipping them. When I was small, Master Payne used to put out a trough, then have us little ones eating from it like hogs. Remember, he'd say, whoever finished last, he gonna cut up and hang up like a piglet and have us for Easter dinner. We fast in. And he just laugh and laugh. It used to scare me, powerful thinking of hanging up in that smokehouse, all salted and ready for master and Mrs. to eat. I tell her that I've heard about night doctors, too. I tap the leather book in my lap. I explain that I've collected stories about them from old former slaves like her, from all around the country. I ask her if night doctors weren't just white men like her master trying to scare the slaves. She hoots at this. Men in sheets? Night doctors not know men in sheets. You friggin' some old white man in a sheet gonna scare a big field hand like Jeremiah? Who was he? Only the biggest buck you ever seen. Strong, too. One time, the overseer tied him to a tree stump. Jeremiah pulled that stump right out the ground and walked around with it dragging behind. He wasn't scared of nothing or nobody neither, except in the night doctors. Did Jeremiah see one? I press. A night doctor? She takes another caramel, sucking for a while before answering. Jeremiah's wife, Adeline, she takes sick. to send out his nigger doctor, same one who look after horses and mules. But he say she burning up with the fever and gonna be dead. Was late that same night, the night doctors come. Jeremiah hear a knocking outside, and he knows nobody come calling around that time. He shout for them to leave, but night doctors don't heed what you say. They come right in under the door. Yes, under the door is what I say. They can squeeze their bodies like a rat do, right under your door, and appear big as day. When Jeremiah see them, he tried to hold on to his wife. But them doctors just start talking they whisper talk. That's how they get on, whispering right inside your head. Adeline hear that whispering and jump out that bed like she not sick. She started walking to them. When Jeremiah try and stop her, she turned back to him. But not her whole body, just her neck, all twisted about like an owl. And when she opened her mouth, Only that whisper talk come out. That just about make Jeremiah crazy. He starts to hollerin' and the other slaves come running, But the night doctors was gone. Take Adeline with them. My hands are shaking as I write. I've recorded many stories about night doctors. But Miss Shaw tells them with a clarity I've never before encountered. Overcome, I lean forward and spill out my own truths. I, too, believe these night doctors are more than folktales, I tell her. And whoever or whatever they are, I believe they can help me in my work. Help me in my great search. And what you looking for, Mr. Bissett? What do you think of some night doctors can help you find? Hate, I tell her. I'm looking for hate. Most people will greet my words with bewilderment. They might even think I was mad, but Maddie Shaw only reaches for another caramel and speaks again without prodding. When Adeline was took, Jeremiah swear he gonna get her back. He sneak off to see a conjuring woman what live on a near plantation. She tell him to go into the woods a ways at night and look for the dade angel oak. That's the way to where them night doctors stay. He gone on do it, traveling to the big, quiet dissecting hall to get to fussing with them night doctors about Adeline. They don't give her, but they let him come back. When we find him, he about half-dead with no eyes in his head. Yes, I say, no eyes. Wasn't nothing there but bloody holes staring out at you. And he tell us what he learned. Why it is them night doctors come. She reaches out to grab my arm. The hand that holds me is old, but the grip is tight, marked with scars and calluses, made strong by enduring hardship. It's our suffering they want. See, they ain't got no feelings where they comes from. They empty and dried out inside. Don't know nothing about pain or misery. And ain't nobody seen more pain and suffering in these parts than us poor slaves. That's why they take just us. Why they leave the white folk be. That's why they take Jeremiah's eyes. Because he done looked out on so much misery in his life. That was the bargain what won him free. She releases me and settles back. But her eyes are as firm as her grip. If you go to see them night doctors, they gonna set a
5: price for you can leave. Or you don't come back. What are you ready to give, Mr. Bissett?
4: That night I walked the woods just on Durham's edges, a ghost in white. Old Maddie Shaw's instructions play in my head. Find the dead angel oak. I'd know it when I see it. But I had to want to see it, she said. And how I wanted that so badly. In medical school, we learned of the discarded notion of humorism, begun by those wise Hamites of Egypt and passed down to the Greeks, Romans, and on to the Hindus in their Ayurveda medicine. It believed in the existence of bodily fluids that made up each man. Blood was the first and foremost humor of life. Yellow bile was the cause of aggression. Black bile was the source of melancholy and phlegm apathy. In our hubris, we've disparaged this wisdom for modernity, and it is our loss, for we are kept ignorant of the human condition. I believe there is another humor yet unaccounted for. Hate. I have seen enough of its workings in this world to know that it exists. If it can be found at its source, perhaps its essence can be counteracted or drained away. To ease the senseless and injurious emotion that has caused humanity such incalculable harm. I looked for it in dissecting halls and in the cold cavities of cadavers, but it remained elusive. So, I took my search to living specimens. My travels have offered me unique opportunities to continue my pursuit, and these night doctors, who understand the hidden inner workings of the body, have been my inspiration. I cannot say if it is I who find the dead tree or if it finds me, but it stands out suddenly in the shadowed forest, where the hickories that surround it are tall and dark. The dead angel oak is squat and bone white. Generous branches grow out from its trunk, splitting into further limbs that spill out upon the ground and reach up into the air. The skeletal remains of dead things cover the tree in a decaying moss. And as I draw near, I can see that some are fused to the pale wood. Rib cages and the vertebrae of spinal columns, even teeth, all taken from more beasts than I can count. I place my hand to a hefty bough and find it solid, but not hard, and warm to the touch. Opening my razor, I draw a gash across the colorless bark. It splits open and oozes blood thick as sap. The dead tree, I decide, is oddly named. I walk to the trunk, wondering fancily if the tree's many appendages might snatch me up like some horrid kraken of the deep. From my bundle of tools, I select the bone saw and set about cutting. The jagged iron teeth tear into red pulp that gives way like tough meat. By the time the hole is made wide enough, I am splattered in arboreal gore. I reach into the fleshy interior, pulling apart hardy muscle and gristle. There is soft, sucking warmth when I push myself into the gaping wound. I take a breath and thrust deeper. For a terrifying moment, there is only suffocating darkness. And I imagine my body becoming trapped within digested by this monstrous tree, my bones fusing to its pallid branches and left to knock together like chimes in any errant wind. Breaking through, I tumble out onto hard stone, covered in the sweet metallic pungency of my birth blood. I am in a hall. To call it cavernous is to do an injustice. It is gargantuan, and I am but a Lilliputian in turn. Its high walls and ceilings are made of white stone that looks continuous, with no bricks or seams, as if carved from one block of massive ivory. The opening I enter through is now a blistering wound, knitting back together like skin before vanishing altogether. I reach a blood-soaked palm to touch where it had been, leaving an imprint on the now unblemished stone. I turn about to look down the hall and can now make out corridors as well. They are endless and flow on and on, like a small city of stone. There is nothing to do now, I surmise, but continue my journey to seek out the masters of this nether realm. As I walk, my shoes reverberate in the silence. It strikes me that there is no sound here but for the trail of blood left by my footsteps, all is pristine, sterile. I reach the first corridor and peer down its length. It is as swallowing and seemingly infinite as the one I now follow. Another on the opposite side is much the same. There are no windows or doors, and I am left to wonder if this hall is all there is to be found here. I am deciding my next course of action when I hear the first noise other than my own. It is a dull shuffling, like many bare feet running upon stone. And it is growing. Base instinct sends me darting into one of the corridors, wary of being seen. Back flat against the wall, I peek around the edge to find a monstrosity emerging from another passageway. I bite a clenched fist not to cry out. The thing before me is a horror from a fevered nightmare. It resembles a great, colorless centipede, easily the width of an automobile, and longer still, with a segmented body of armor topped with a fused spinal ridge. It is so uniformly white, it blends with the stones as it pours out from the corridor, winding along the ceiling on a multitude of legs, each of which ends in a long, fingered hand. Clinging to the wall, it snakes down to the closed opening where I entered. Two protracted antennae twitch as mandibles upon its eyeless head open to lap up my bloodied handprint. It stretches to the ground, half of its elongated bulk still clutching the wall, while a torso of wriggling legs, fingers, and feelers scours the floor clean of the first of my bloody footprints. I turn and run. Knowing now that I am being hunted, panic grips me in my flight. I imagine this monstrosity is the guard dog of this place. Or perhaps a scavenger, set to maintain its purity. And I am terrified of my fate were it to find me. I think to remove my blood-stained shoes, cursing at not having the wits to do so earlier. It is as I pause to look over my shoulder to see if I am being pursued that something seizes me. I am pulled off my feet, landing hard on my back. My head strikes the stone floor and my world threatens to go dark in a blossom of pain, but I chase it away, forcing my mind back to coherency. I am being dragged by my legs, my body limp and arms splayed at my sides. I cry out, thinking the monstrous scavenger has captured me. But when I crane my neck to look up, I find I am held by giants. They appear to my eyes at first as impossibly tall men. Their bodies are draped in long white robes over frames that seem almost skeletal. The hands that hold me are pale, with desiccated skin stretched tight over long, slender fingers. I shout, demanding to be released. But when one turns back to me, I am stricken silent. There are no features on that colorless face, no eyes, nose, or even a mouth. There are just folds of wrinkled skin on an elongated head. As I stare into that blank visage, I know, then, that I have found the beings that I have so long sought, the bottle men and needle men of old Negro folklore who stalk the darkness and shadows, the night doctors. We stop, and I am lifted. Deposited unceremoniously atop a raised block of stone, I attempt to rise, but a whisper fills my head, a cacophony of voices that shatter my will. My body obeys this eldritch power, and I lay immobile as six-fingered hands reach to tear away my clothing, discarding my soiled suit and stripping me bare. I am unable even to blink, leaving me to stare as another block of stone descends from above. This one is lined with silver implements, the first hint of color I've seen. One looks like scissors with four serrated blades. Another is cruelly hooked like a scythe. Others are pointed, barbed, or covered in thin needles. The otherworldly lords of this realm arrange themselves about me, each taking one of the silver devices in hand. I know what they are, then the tools of a surgeon. Grasping their intent, I am fast to overcome with that animal terror, the very one I have seen in the eyes of my specimens. It threatens to envelop me, drown me in its depths, but I have come too far to end things here. I grapple with the terror-stricken animal within, caging it and resting back control as a blade descends to part my flesh. Wait, I shout. I want to talk. Wait. I watch the blade move closer and wonder if my words will reach them. Were the amoeba on my Petri dish to voice its lament, would I hear? Were the frog in my dissecting tray to cry out to stay my hand, would I listen? I remember then old Maddie Shaw's words. They would set a price. I can pay the price, I scream the blade mercifully stops and hovers. The night doctors turn to regard each other, and the whispering begins again, filling the silence in the spaces of my mind. I do not understand, but when it stops, one of those terrible faces leans down to loom over me. The voice that comes is a whisper, alien and cold, that hammers my skull. Price. What do you know of
5: the price?
4: My words spill out in a rush. I know what you seek, the pain, the misery. I know it. You didn't take me like the others. I sought you out. I came here willingly because I know about the price.
5: Fools come here willingly.
4: I'm not certain if it is the same voice or another, but I give answer. I'm like you, an explorer. I search for something, something more than the misery and pain you've come to savor. Help me find it, and I will offer it to you. One of the Cyclopean heads tilt, appearing curious. Name this thing you would offer. Name this new price.
5: Hate, I whisper. I will give you
4: hate. The night doctors share looks and new whispers. I don't need to understand to know their meaning. It is confusion. They turn back to look down at me. You will explain. Hate. I am struck silent. How am I to describe hate to beings such as these? How do I put meaning? to the insensible. I am still in my thoughts when the blade descends, cutting deep into my abdomen with a searing fire. A primal scream pours from my depths, and the caged animal howls in unison, throwing itself at its bars. I watch as the glistening ropes of my intestines are pulled free. The night doctors probe its fleshy contours, heedless of my cries, A hand reaches back inside me to retrieve a pink mass I know is my stomach. It is passed around among my hosts, one of whom slits it open to spill out the putrid contents. My liver is poured over by slender fingers, investigated as one would a book. It is only then that I understand. You will explain hate. They are reading me, seeking to comprehend what could not be put into words. It must have been them, I muse, who long ago visited the Babylonians, delivering the lesson of hepatoscopy, the reading of entrails passed to the Hittites, Etruscans, and priestesses of Old Rome. With this final knowing, I surrender to the pain, my shrieks coming in a holy litany. I sing to these lords of viscera, I tell them of hate, of Negro bodies hung from trees like fruit, in the cooked hearts and severed fingers distributed as souvenirs, in the postcards to celebrate the bonfires made of men and women for no other crime but negritude, in the daily rituals of humiliations and oppressions that engulfs the whole land. I sing to them of the hate that consumes men's souls like a ravaging cancer. When my eyes are plucked free, leaving only tears of blood to streak my cheeks, I am still singing. It is not yet morning when I stand again before Miss Maddie Shaw. I am dressed once more in my white suit, my white shoes, my white bowler hat, and holding my white doctor's bag. She awakens at my presence, blinking up at me. You come back, she says plainly. I give a slow nod. I have been to the place where the night doctors live. Her eyes meet my empty, bleeding sockets. Look like it's so. Her granddaughter murmurs from a pile of blankets on the floor. I whisper a command and she eases back into sleep my attention returns to Miss Maddie Shaw. They have shared with me their secrets and returned me to do my work. In truth, they had done more than that. They had initiated me, chosen me as their conduit to this world, to seek out this promised feast of hate. I thank you, I say, for showing me the way. The old woman grunts. Seem like you knows the way long for I tell you. I grin at this, and she flinches. When I turn to leave, she calls out a question. What you give them to learn de secrets? To let you come back? I look down beneath the white suit to a body now impute of organs and entrails and blood of all that it once held.
5: All of me I answer.
4: I gave everything. With those parting words I collapse, flattening like a rat, as I squeeze beneath the door of her cabin and out into the night.
2: I mean, where do I begin? I could go on about Clark's gorgeous prose, Nixon's fantastic performance, but what really stays with me is the feeling of dread that followed me all the way through this story from beginning to end. I can't stop thinking about it.
3: Oh, it was the dread that really crawled underneath my skin for this one Mm. and had me guessing at every turn. Were the doctors really something white folks made up to keep Black enslaved people from running away? But then Maddie Shaw believes so wholly in the legend, does she reclaim it as her own? And then does Bissette reclaim it as well? There are so many turns in this, but maybe that's what Clark intended?
2: Maybe. I mean, you might be right about that. The historical details are just fantastic. There really is a dark, shameful history of dead black enslaved people being stolen to become cadavers and unethical medical experimentation on black people without their knowledge or consent. If you've never heard of night doctors before listening to this story, look them up and look up the Tuskegee syphilis study. You'll be appalled at what you learn.
3: Yeah. I had never heard of Night Doctors, and I did exactly that. I looked Mm -hmm. it up, and I was so astonished to realize that, yes, this is based on true legend. It's
2: it's unbelievable. It really is, and it's not something they teach you in school.
3: Oh, definitely not, but it is a part of our history.
2: It is indeed. And that's a wrap. Thank you, Devin, for being such an incredible co-host.
3: Well, thank you for having me and being an incredible host, Marco. And if you liked Stories to Keep You Up at Night, show us some love with a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Thanks for listening, and pleasant nightmares.
3: You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up
0: at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
2: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling-medical-investigator, Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine. coming January 2nd wherever podcasts are available.
0: Stories to Keep You Up at Night Episode 97 features Night Doctors by P. Jelly Clark. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Angela Yee and Devon Shepard. An executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Mary Asadolahi. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Devon Shepard. Performed by Leon Nixon. Audio edited by Corey Barton. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night, by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.